0: If you have a Bible with you this morning, many of you are expecting me to say open to the book of Romans, but we are going to be taking a break from the book of Romans uh, for no other reason than I wanted to. Uh, I am the one, as I say, with the mic, and so you've got to listen to what I choose. And uh, today we're going to be in Hosea. We're actually going to start a, a study through the 12 minor prophets. Sometimes the different traditions have called this the book of the 12. They kind of collapse this, uh, Hosea, all the way through Malachi under one book. And we're going to be taking sort of one chapter of that book each week for the next 12 weeks. This is called the book of the Twelve because these are the twelve minor prophets as opposed to the major prophets, which is also a bit misleading because the major prophets sound more important and the minor prophets sound less important, but that's not what we mean by it. Typically, we just mean that the major prophets are longer. Um, But if you look one page back at Daniel, you'll find that Daniel only has 12 chapters. Hosea's got 14, so things sometimes are just the way they are and we just have to live with it. So, Who knows why uh, it is labeled the way that it is, but we will be looking at the entirety of the book of Hosea this morning. And as we go through the 12, we'll be basically going through and summarizing each of the books. Most of them we will be able to read in whole. Hosea, we cannot. I timed myself this week. It takes about 30 minutes to read out loud at my pace. It would take some of you more or less than that. I would suggest then as we kind of summarize this book, you, you need to know that Hosea is a difficult book. It's hard to just run straight through the book of Hosea. So, we're going to do a lot of sort of thematic work and summarizing the book of Hosea, which means we're going to be going forward and we're going to be going backwards and we're going to be going up the page and down the page and we'll be all over the place. So, if you are a diligent note keeper, do me a favor. Write down the references. I will read what it says. But don't try to flip through the book of Hosea. Listen to what I'm saying and get all the references at the same time. It might be a little bit confusing for you. Uh, Stay with just writing down the references. and, And when we do read longer passages of Scripture, I will clue you in on that. As we begin our study then through the book of the Twelve, we begin with the first book, Hosea. Hosea was a prophet primarily to the northern kingdom, which we will talk about here in just a minute. And he began his work right around 750 A.D. We know this because of the kings that he lists at the beginning of his book as a way to sort of set the time. He doesn't have a year in mind because they didn't keep calendars like that back then. Um, But we do and we can pin this down to around 750 A.D. When the people of God were taken out of Egypt, they were moved through the wilderness and into the promised land And they were kind of broken up into 12 different groups, loosely associated, not fully associated, with the 12 sons of Jacob. They were called 12 tribes. Through these 12 tribes were each allotted a different section of land. And those tribes were then given one king from the tribe of Judah. Eventually, though, the kingdom split. The northern kingdom took up about 12 of those clans. The southern kingdom took on about two, principally, Benjamin and Judah, which is where we get the name Jews from. The northern kingdom went by several different names. Sometimes it's the northern kingdom. Sometimes it's named after its capital, Samaria. Sometimes it goes by an important person in their midst, whether that would be Ephraim, which we will hear many times today, whether it's Jacob, whether it is the nation of Israel. So when you hear Ephraim in here, realize that it's referring to the northern kingdom, it's not referring to Judah, and it's referring to the the people of Israel who belong to that kingdom. Hosea is prophesying in 7.50 about something that, although he does not know it, will happen in 7.22, some three decades or so later, when the people of Israel are actually exiled from their homeland by the Assyrian kingdom. Its timing makes Hosea a contemporary with the famous Isaiah, one of the first prophets that we have who writes books for us. So let us turn to this book and begin to read of its goodness for us as we summarize it this morning. The first thing we would want to say, which is the theme of the first three chapters, and if you know anything about the book of Hosea, it is likely this. It is that Israel is adulterous. Israel is adulterous. This is pressed into us in these first nine verses. If you would, read those verses with me this morning. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Berai, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, "'Call his name Jezreel, for in a little while "'I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, "'and I will put an end to the kingdom "'of the house of Israel, and on that day "'I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel.' "'She conceived again and bore a daughter. "'The Lord said to him, "'Call her name No Mercy, "'for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel "'to forgive them at all. "'But I will have mercy on the house of Judah.' And I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow, or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. This is the word of our Lord. We can read that passage, as familiar as it is for some of us, and kind of remind ourselves that Hosea was called on to do this and realize that being a prophet in Israel was not always the funnest vocation that you could possibly have. Uh, Hosea is forced here to take on a wife whom by the very nature of who she is, is likely to cheat on him and to have adulterous affairs with him. As a matter of fact, that is kind of given as a a generalization by the work. It's assumed that that would be the case. What's more, we could flip to almost any prophet and find out that they had a hard life to live. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. Isaiah is, is rewarded for his faithfulness as God says, who will go before the people for me? And he says, I will. I will go send me. He says, okay, you're going to go and your message is going to be totally ineffective in saving anybody. Ezekiel, for all of his weirdness, has to, you know, do, among other things, cook his food over animal dung. That is the, the source of fire that he gets to use, which was technically a gracious thing because the Lord originally told him to use human feces. So, if you don't do that today, bonus, uh, you've got something good for you. Hosea gets a pretty tough, tough allotment as well. He's told to go and to marry this woman. You might think that because Israel had this sort of sexual immorality all over it, that, well, this might not have been that big of a deal. It might not have been that important to them. It might not have stuck out to them. But I doubt it. This would have been like imagining a son coming home at Thanksgiving and bringing his fiancée, nice girl, You say, hey, it's good to meet you. I'm so glad to finally meet you. What is it that you do? She says, Oh, I, I'm, a, I'm a prostitute. Thanksgiving's about to get real. There isn't enough gravy to drown that revelation, friends. And you want to talk to him. You want to you wanna go to him and be like, Maybe this isn't the girl for you. Maybe you should be a little bit more discerning. And I, I don't think that Israel's response would have been that much different. There were girls who you marry and there were girls who were prostitutes. And those two categories don't mix. They would have looked at Hosea and been like, Hosea, I don't think you understand the stupidity of what you're doing. But then Hosea goes and he ratchets it up a notch. Notice the names that he's giving to this. We'll come back to Jezreel. But she bears a daughter and the Lord says, call her no mercy. Loru Ruhamah which is actually kind of a pretty name until you find out that it means no mercy because God won't have mercy on his kids. So he gives birth to a child whose named no mercy. His second son, he names not my people. And you can almost hear the people of Israel looking at Hosea and saying, what do you mean to call your son not my people? The fact that he is your son is your, your, your This is ridiculous, Hosea. This is Stupid and ignorant. Why would you marry her and why would you name your children this? There's a disconnect between what Hosea is doing and what the culture probably and likely would expect. And that disconnection is precisely the point. Why would Israel expect that their unfaithfulness would be allowed before God? Why should they expect that God would simply put up with it? Why, with all their unfaithfulness, should they expect the Lord's mercy? why with all of their adultery should they be called God's people? Hosea is living out the insanity of the relationship between the people of God and their God. And my assumption is that they would see it for the insanity that it is in Hosea and not in their own lives. Faithfulness, faithlessness to God is nothing less, friends, than foolishness and insanity. It is never reasonable. It is never acceptable. It is never something that is just gotten over. Just like no man in the world would just get over his wife committing adultery on him. Therefore, God will give them over to a fitting punishment. This is the main theme of the second chapter. Verses 7 through 13 say this, She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, she shall not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bale. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were there to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all of her appointed feasts. And I will waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them, and I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she turned, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself. And her ring and her jewelry, and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Israel is guilty of grave adultery, turning from the one who has faithfully called them, turning from the one who has given them all good things. Everything that they have has been given to them by the Lord, and yet they claim these gods have given them to me. You might ask, how did we get here? Hosea has blame to lay, and he lays it at the feet the priests, which brings us to our second point. The priests are duplicitous. The priests are duplicitous. They are liars. They are fiends. They are thieves. They are blasphemers. They are duplicitous. They present themselves as though they are the priests of the Lord, but they do not know the Lord. They do not know his requirements. They do not know his commandments, and they do not faithfully present the Lord to his people. This is the main burden of chapters 4 and 5. And as we read the first 14 or so verses of chapter 4, I want you to listen to how often a lack of knowledge is brought up in this chapter. Priests were not just present in Israel in order to provide sacrifices. They weren't there just to lay animals down on grills. They weren't pitmasters. They were also there not only to provide sacrifices for the people of God, but to teach the people of God what those sacrifices meant. To teach them the commands and the obligations of the people of God. To teach them, in short, about God. And they have failed. Hosea chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend, let no one accuse, for it is with you my contention is, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. And I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat... But not be satisfied, and they shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And a people without understanding shall come to ruin. People sin against God because they don't know God. They sin against God because the priests have been unfaithful in doing their job. They have rejected knowledge, so the Lord, he says, will reject them. In 4.1, 4.6, 410, and 11, and 414, we have the repeated refrain: There is not a knowledge of me. They do not know me. The thought is repeated in chapter 5, verse 4. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. They don't know the Lord. They're so far away. All they think is that in order for us to patch up this relationship, all we need to do is burn some animals. That'll, that'll be enough. That's all God wants. God just, if we bring enough sheep, if we bring enough cattle, we can make it right with the Lord. This is exactly what comes in verse 6 of chapter 5. With their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He is withdrawn from them. Their sacrifices mean nothing The reason why is in chapter 6, verse 6, where God finally makes it clear to them, I desire love, steadfast love, and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He says it is better for you to know who I am, to be faithful to me, to love me, than to continually think that you can go astray, that you can leave me behind, that you can forsake my law and my commandments and come back to me with burnt offerings. That's not what the burnt offerings are there for. What I want is steadfast love from you. Priests are duplicitous. They say that they know the Lord. They teach that these sacrifices will make the people right with God, but they don't understand the first thing that they're doing. Therefore, the problem of the priests being duplicitous and the people being adulterous Are mixed up together, continuing in chapter 6 and verse 7. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead, major city in Israel, is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem, they commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. Ephraim's whoredom and they're being defiled go hand in hand. They're defiled because the, the priests cannot possibly, cannot possibly atone for their sins. The priests cannot offer right sacrifices because the people don't understand what right sacrifices are. They can't possibly bring those sacrifices in faith because they've got no idea why they're doing it. Because the priests don't tell them about God. They don't make clear what it means to be faithful to God. And so, as the people go astray, Israel is defiled. The end result is that while Israel clearly thinks they know God, the God that they serve is only a figment of their imagination. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 3 Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. How can a people be made right with the Lord when even the mediators of mercy are evil and duplicitous? But thirdly, we ought to see something important here, and that is their sin is continuous. Their sin is continuous. This is not a new thing that has crept up in 760 that all of a sudden now in 750, Hosea is saying, hey, this is a real problem. We've got to clean this up. Several times, Hosea goes out of his way to note that these sins, the kinds of things that they are doing in the land are not recent things, but they are the continual and past problems of all of the people of Israel. Well, this is made most clear in chapter 9. It is clear even from the beginning of the book. The first child that Hosea's wife bears to him is named Jezreel. That is likely a reference back to the land of Jezreel where a man named Naboth owned a vineyard. And in 1 Kings 21, we find that Ahab, the weak and worthless king of the northern kingdom, looked on that vineyard and said, I, I would like to have that vineyard. And he did the right thing. He went to Naboth and he said, Hey Naboth, Here's a fat stack of cash. I would like your vineyard. Nabal said, no, I can't give you my vineyard. It doesn't matter how much money you bring to me because this is my inheritance. This is the very thing that God gave to my fathers. And my fathers have passed on to me. I can't possibly sell it. So Ahab does exactly what you think a mighty and magnificent king would do. He goes back to his palace and he pouts like a four-year-old. His wife comes in and says, why are you so sullen? What's wrong? he says, Naboth won't sell me his vineyard. She says, "Ah, oh, I can fix that, my love. I can fix that. She plots and she schemes to get, in her words, worthless men to make false claims against Naboth, to take him out and to stone him to death. They do exactly what she wants. And she comes back and she says, oh, my love, he's dead. Go take his vineyard. These sins are wicked and ruthless. They're quite clearly the massive abuse of power. They are of the same fabric. They are unified to the same sins that the people of Israel are going in and doing today. There's a pattern of sin here. The people are violent, they're ruthless, and before God there is no fear. In chapter 9, in two verses back to back, this is brought forward even more. In verse 9 of chapter 9, we read this <clears throat> They have deeply corrupted themselves, as in the day of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity, he will punish their sins. Gebeah is most famous for Judges 19. A priest, a Levite, his concubine. His servant were, were traveling and they had to spend the night somewhere. Had the option of spending the night in a foreign city, in a city that was not controlled by Israelites, not controlled by Benjaminites, not controlled by the people of God. And they said, no, 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 far be it from us to go to some pagan place. Let us go to Gebeah. Let us spend the night there. We can just sleep in the city center. Somebody finds them and says, no, you can't sleep in the city center. You've got to come with me. Men come, pounding on the door. Thinking that he would get raped, he sends out his concubine. The men of Gebeah rape her until she dies. He then cuts her body, desecrating her, and sends her to 12 tribes of Israel as a way of showing the evil that has been done against him deeply corrupted, deeply evil. God says, that's the same kind of corruption that's going on now. It's the same thing. It hasn't abated. It's taken a different form. It's still there. The very next reference in 9.10, to Baal Peor, or Baal Peor. Same reference to Numbers 25, when the people met these women of Peor, they started to marry them and they led them astray into the worship of Baal, which has continually plagued Israel and is plaguing them even here in Hosea. The point is simply this. These sins are not a flash in the pan. These things are not something that have come up lately, but they are the very nature of the sins that have plagued Israel from their very inception. The patience and the long-suffering of the Lord has finally come to an end. And therefore, number four, the Lord is ferocious. God depicts, through the words of Hosea, his fierce and undiluted anger in this book, as he does in many books. Look at chapter 5, verses 11 through 15. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off. And no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress, earnestly seek me. We read first that he is a moth. We're reminded of the words of Jesus that moth and rust destroy. And you might think, oh, moth, that's not terribly bad. A little bit of dry rot, we can deal with that, right? And it changes so quickly into this idea that I'm not just a moth or dry rot, which, which devours slowly over time, I'm, I'm also like a lion that will rip into you. The nation thinks that they can escape to Assyria, but they can't run fast enough to get away from this lion. You've seen the National Geographic footage. You know what happens to the gazelle. The same sinew and meat that's flying up is what God intends to do to Israel. and He makes it clear, no matter how it happens, no matter what nation brings that judgment, I, even I, am doing this. Same idea is present in chapter 8, verses 7 through 10. They sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel, for they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the kings and princes so soon writhe because of the tribute. king was realizing that he's in trouble. He knows that there is a military attack coming to him and he knows that his nation is severely oppressed by this. They will will be crushed. God says, instead of turning to me, they're turning to all the alliances they can do. They're going to send out tributes. They're going to try to appease these kings. And God says, it doesn't matter. The picture here is that they won't eat. The wheat will not have heads on it. There will be no grain pulled from this. But the Lord is also clear. Instead of them eating, the Lord is going to devour them. He will consume them. Israel will be swallowed up. In chapter 13, we resume the idea of a lion and expand it even. In verses 4 through 8, we read, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and beside me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. And when they were full, their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will tear open their breast. And there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He says, you guys are like cattle. This is a a depiction that God has made of his people ever since they built the golden calf. They have become like the one that they have worshipped. They are stiff-necked, they are hard to turn, and now he says, you're like cattle. You're easy pickings. Like a lion, like a leopard, like a bear, like a wild beast. Pick your animal, I'm coming after you, and I will devour you. is meant, all of this, to be a stark and bloody depiction of the wrath that is coming to them. And all of this is meant to have two effects. First, it is actually meant to get us on the side of Israel, or on, excuse me, on the side of, of God, on the side of Yahweh, who has been forsaken. The pictures that are given to us are meant to get us to say, yes, indeed, if that, if that were me, I would be wrathful and angry. And it is also then to tell us the depth of God's frustration and anger and wrath. It is meant to be bloody, it is meant to be ugly, and it is meant to be horrendous because it can't be anything less than that. God has been cheated, slandered, forsaken, ignored, and rejected after all of the graciousness that he has continually shown among Israel and all the work that he has done for them. I think By placing Hosea into an adulterous relationship, he is inviting us to say, think of yourself in my position. You you take in somebody who is needy. They're homeless. They have no clothes. You, You give them clothes, home, shelter. You provide them food and nourishment. And you find out that not only have you given them that, you've given them job and wealth and good things. And you find out that rather than thanking you for it, they're going around to everyone they possibly can and telling them what a disastrous person you are. They're lying about you. They're deceiving others about you. They're slandering you. Telling people that you are weak, worthless, unkind, and demanding. You'd be angry. Add to that the, the betrayal of a most intimate kind and adultery. Would you not feel wrath and anger? Would you not be filled with with vengeance and hatred? And even so, God is holier and purer than us. His wrath is more deserved and more glorious and more devastating. Should we not expect this? Should we not expect God's wrath to leak out on every single page? And yet, even amidst this, we find, number five, that the Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. For every wrath filled sentiment that you find as you read throughout the book of Hosea, you find almost immediately a gracious response of God that says, No, I love you too much. Adultery, a woman who has cheated on the Lord, God says, No, I will woo my bride. After he says all of the evil that will come to the nation of Israel in chapter 2, God says this in chapter 2, verses 16 through 20. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by her no more, by name, and, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the fields, with the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love, and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you Shall know the Lord. Adultery? No, God will woo his bride. What about children? What about no mercy? And what about not my people? Immediately after that, Hosea says, The number of children, in chapter 1, verse 10, the number of children of Israel yet shall be like the sea, sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children, of the living God, the wrath of God, that anger ferocious, that rips us apart, that tears us. Chapter six, we are reminded that that tearing will be for our good. The first three verses, Hosea writes, "Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, that He may heal us. He has." struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us and on the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water under the earth. The very picture of our destruction becomes a picture of God healing us. What about those cows that graze, the cows that are easy fodder, those cows that are easy prey for the wild beasts and lions and bears and leopards? In chapter 10, God makes them reap good. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Several times throughout this book, God promises to send e- his people to Egypt. In 8 3, in 9 3, and in 9 6, He says, I'm going to send you back to Egypt whence you've come from. If you don't want to be my people, I will reverse time for you. I will send you back to Egypt before you were my people, before I called you out and made you a nation. I will send you back there. This is sitting in line with the promises of Deuteronomy and the curses of not following the law. As a matter of fact, if you were to read Deuteronomy 28 and compare it to much of Hosea, you will find a lot of ringing coincidences which aren't actually coincidences. And there in Deuteronomy, verse 60 and 68 of that 28th chapter, God promises, "I will send you to Egypt when you don't obey my covenant. He will send His people away. Yet, in chapter 11, verse five, God says, "They shall not return to the land of Egypt." The very same people that in 9:15, He says, "I will love them no more." In 11, eight and nine, He says, "How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel?" How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboiim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. It is almost like Hosea saying, God's anger burns within him, and he wants to destroy the lot of you, but he he just can't. He just can't help but be gracious. And and the point is not that he looks at all of the good things that you are. He looks at the beauty of who you are, and he looks at the the quality of the people you are, and, and, and how much adorable you are, like some sort of pet. No, that's not the case. It is in the very nature of God that he is compassionate. It is the very nature of God to be merciful. His compassion is stupefying. His mercy seemingly unlimited. His grace is seen in every single judgment. How in the world are we supposed to keep those two things together? How in the world are we supposed to keep a God who is as wrathful and as angry and who promises that promises the coming wrath to his people, and yet at the same time, and sometimes in the very next breath says, but I'm going to have compassion on you. And, and let's, let's realize that Hosea, Hosea is not making this easy. There are a lot of prophets who, who generally have set up this pattern of, listen, here's all the bad news, and then they turn a corner and they say, but there are days coming when the Lord will be good Isaiah kind of rings like this, not completely, but kind of. The first 39 chapters are really bad. But then 40 through 66 are some of the greatest, most uplifting passages in all of Scripture. And Hosea has none of that. He seems to whip back and forth between evil, wrath, punishment, justice, and love, tender mercy, and kindness. It's like watching a tennis match going back and forth. There's wrath. There's love, there's mercy, or there's there's wickedness and evil and punishment, there's there's kindness and judgment, or there's kindness and, and faithfulness and gentleness to his people. How can the wrath of God and the love of God hang over the same people like this? How does God punish his people as a prostitute and yet woo them as a bride? How does God rip into people as a lion and yet treat that wound like it's a surgical strike to heal them. How can God have mercy on his people and also hold them accountable? Can these things be held together? The answer, of course, is yes. Part of it is that from us in the New Testament, it it has to be to not know the fear of the Lord, to not know his fierce wrath and anger is to make light of sin. And treating sin lightly means that you are likely to continue in it. You are likely to think it's no big deal. It's just God forgives. We just need to go and say a prayer. We just need to make amends. we got to make it right. I can say a few words, and he's likely to just kind of forget the whole thing happened. Realize that, friends, doing that is less than taking burnt offerings to the Lord, which he has already rejected. We must see the weight of that. But to then view God as though he is mostly wrath and anger would put a weight on you that is unbearable. You would seek to do what is good and right and true before the Lord, no doubt, to avoid this kind of punishment. But the weight upon you would be unbearable. It would crush you. And it would crush you without compassion. And it would crush you without love. Hosea goes back and forth because you need to see that it's not one thing and then another, but simultaneously, at the same time, God is filled with wrath, he is filled with anger, and he is filled with love, and he is filled with compassion. He is both. Sixthly, as we see, that Jesus is marvelous. He's marvelous. The solution to these things, I think, is something beyond what Hosea actually writes of here. He seems to write in such a way that means for us to sit in the tension of what he has told us. he Can't possibly know Jesus. He's not going to be born for another 750 years or so. But for those of us who do know Jesus, we can see how this tension is relieved in him. This is seen in in the way that Hosea is used even in the New Testament. Matthew quotes Hosea 11.1 when speaking of Jesus. He says, That when the Lord came down and spoke to Mary and Joseph and said, hey, you got to get the kid and you got to run to Egypt. Matthew says, this was to fulfill the scripture, out of Egypt I called my son. When you read Hosea 11, it doesn't sound like that is any kind of a fulfillment prophecy. As a matter of fact, it doesn't look like it's looking forward, but looking backward. Hosea 11 says this, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But just as Hosea collectively refers to the nation as one man here, Israel, in other places, Ephraim, in other places, Jacob, Israel has come from one man and to one man they will go. And Matthew, looking and knowing the full story of Jesus, sees that he will be the stand-in for all of the wrath, all of the anger, all of the justice of God. And if he is going to stand in for Israel then, he will stand in for Israel in all respects. The path of Israel is the path of Jesus because he will stand in for Israel and do what Israel could not do. If Israel was called out of Egypt, so will Jesus. For he is the one who will take Israel's place. And therefore, the people who are called not my people will be called the people of the Lord Paul insists that this is fulfilled again in Jesus because the Gentiles who could never have been called the people of God now outside of the law which would crush them and leave them in the exact same state that Israel was in outside of the law by the grace of Jesus Christ they are called now the people of God in Romans 9. Even more, Hosea seems to ask a question about the defeat of death. In chapter 13 verse 14. There's two ways to translate the words that are found there. The ESV goes with a statement at first. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. It's that last line that makes me think that they ought to actually translate that differently and translate it as a question. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I really redeem them from death? Does that seem like something I should do? Should I have compassion on my people? The point is not that Hosea wants us to wonder aloud about whether or not God will deliver his people, but to give us pause and think over the gratefulness, the greatness of that work. This is the very penalty that they deserve. This is what is coming to them. Should God not do that? Should God spare them from that? Will death truly lose its sting for them? And Paul resoundingly answers, yes. Because the sting of death was felt not by them, but by Jesus. In Jesus, we have this tension relieved because in Jesus we have the wrath of God poured out. We have the anger and the ferociousness of God seen in his penalty and pursuit of his holy name. But we also have the great compassion and mercy The great love with which he loved us made clear and evident because on that cross he took the wrath that was due for us and dying in our stead gave us life instead. Jesus is marvelous. And what's more, when your son comes home at Thanksgiving and says, I want you to meet my fiance, she's a prostitute, realize that that is precisely what Jesus does. Because when he goes to heaven and he comes back to the Father, he is preparing to purchase by his blood a bride who is just as adulterous and faithless as any prostitute ever was. People who have played the whore with the gods of this world, with the lusts and the desires of this world, forsaking the commandments of the Lord for ease for their own gain and their own pleasure. Hosea can only go out of his way to implore her to be faithful. Jesus is marvelous and he can make her faithful. These tensions between the great wrath and the loving kindness of the Lord are finally and only finally seen in the giving of Jesus on our behalf. He dies for our sins to both show and fulfill God's righteous wrath And mysteriously, in the same man and in the same action, to also fulfill his loving plan for us. Yet, that does mean one more thing for us. The seventh point is obvious because suffering is obvious and because I left it filled in for you. Though all of this is through grace, it is clear when you read through here that the suffering comes upon everybody. The lion rips and tears both the rejected and the redeemed. The same event means wrath, anger, and punishment for those whom God will reject, and grace, kindness, and even good for those whom God will redeem. How can this be? I think that it must be so. Their suffering must be obvious. How can God let a wayward people see the importance of having fidelity to him? They are told by all the false priests that surround them. They are told by the culture That the reason why you have these good things, yes, is in part due to this God named Yahweh, but it's also due to this God named Molech and that Asherah pole and the way in which you offer this sacrifice, none of which God has allowed you to do. It is because you you worship all these gods that that you have all these blessings to you. How is God to correct that without taking away that which is good from them so that they might know that good only comes from them, only comes from the Lord? Listen to 10, 1 and 2. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Why? Because those sites of worship, which were not sites of worship to the Lord, increased all the more because they thought, this is what's doing it for us. How can God lead them back without taking that away? How can God heal the sickness that is within them without wounding them in this way? The nation is utterly confused about where their bounty has come from. Again in 2.12, God says that he will lay waste to Israel's vines and her fig trees of which she said, these are my wages which my lovers have given me. Therefore, Israel must suffer to understand who their God is. It's just like what happened to their namesake, Jacob. In 12, 2 through 6, we have this report of Jacob wrestling with God, fighting with God, leaving that interaction with, with a hip and a, that's out of socket and a limp that will travel with him forever. He needs to be reminded of who God is. That only ever comes through suffering. Prosperity gospel Is nowhere found in Scripture. It's just not there. God never promises to do good things for you and to fulfill all your delights in the world. That's why, as Josh read just this morning in Ephesians 1, he says, You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's waiting for you, but it's not here. So that you might never be confused as to where your good comes from. God will remind them of his provision he will show them their faithfulness, not by giving them more, but by. T- in chapter twelve, verses seven through nine, we read that a merchant in whose hands are false balances loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, "Ah, but I am rich; I have found wealth for myself, and all my labors they cannot find in me—iniquity or sin." I am the Lord, the God, your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. In chapter 2, he says just as much. And that that picture of tents is leading them through the wilderness. In chapter 2, he says the same thing. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness. I will speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Acor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. There is coming a time when God will lead them out to the wilderness, and he will take them through the wilderness, where their sandals did not wear out, where they were never thirsty, they were never hungry, but they had nothing so that they would know who the Lord their God is. Again, most beautifully summed up in the passage of Hosea 6, 1 through 3. Let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. Our suffering, friends, in this world should never be confused as a mark of punishment but a wooing of God to draw us closer to him. To long for a country that is better than this. To long for a land that is better than this. To long for a place that is better than this. To long for comforts that are better than anything that you can get here. To long for wine that is better than the wine that you can find anywhere. To long for better food, better everything. Let us understand that and see that. Our God is always gracious and good to his people. He disciplines them, not as punishment, but as children, so that he may lead you home. As we come to a close this morning, let us read very simply the 14th chapter, and then let us pray. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words, and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity. Accept what is good. And we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. But in you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow and they shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. Let us pray. Our Father, we know of your grace in Christ. And we know the good that is promised to us. Good that even now we apprehend through faith and feel through the Spirit. Allow us to know your good, even in your discipline, making us fit for the kingdom of heaven as you kindly treat us as the children we are. Thank you for your great promises, for being a God who is faithful to his word. For through Jesus, Israel is as numerous as the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky, none of which can be counted. May you be praised by your people for the great things that you have done for us. We ask all these things for our good and for your glory. Amen.